You're listening to episode number 31 of the Effective Statistician Podcast. Being a supervisor, things you would love to have known before you became one, or that you should know if you want to become one. Welcome to the Effective Statistician with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, the weekly podcast for statisticians in the health sector designed to improve your leadership skills, widen your business acumen, and enhance your efficiency. Please subscribe to our newsletter as we would like to get more information for you, from you to better serve you in the future. We are also planning to give you lots of actionable, short, weekly advice in the future, another reason to subscribe to the newsletter. Please be aware that the deadline for the PSI conference is approaching. It's ending in uh, 23rd of November, the deadline for the oral presentations and for the abstracts. So please submit something. In today's episode, we'll chat about leadership and here actually about administrative leadership. So this is a little bit different from the other episodes that we have about leadership. Here it's really about managing people. And uh, I'm very, very proud that we have a special guest here, uh, Simon Cliel from Biogen, who will talk to us and chat with us about his experiences as a supervisor. This is also a little bit different from the sound. You will hear at the beginning of the episode why. This podcast is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the special interest groups, video on demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars and much, much more. Just visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member. Okay, we have another episode of the Effective Statistician and this, this time is actually something that we have never done before. It's actually a complete face-to-face -face interview that we are recording here alongside the PSI conference in Amsterdam in 2018. And with me in the room are, as usual, my co-host Benjamin. Hello. And we have Simon, Slam Simon Kiel. Hello. Okay, so this is a, also has another special thing for me because when I first became supervisor, Simon was actually my mentor to get me kind of a little bit learning from him what he did well, what he didn't do well. He shared all these kind of things with me and that was so uh, helpful for me when uh, I was first supervisor that I thought it's probably likely helpful for others that want to become supervisors or that are just new supervisors. And as people management is a very, very complex topic, this is probably even interesting for those that are long-term uh, supervisors. If you're not a supervisor, then that might be interesting for you because you might understand your supervisor better. <laughs> because supervising, um, as we will see, has lots of different uh, aspects. Okay, so let's go into the um, a little bit of an introduction. Simon, maybe best you in introduce yourself 
Sure. So um, I work for Biogen in the UK. I'm the biometric site head for our office there, which means there's a team of 14 folk and I provide some uh, local support to them. I don't supervise them all, but I, I provide some local support for them and I uh, lead one of the therapeutic areas that uh, Biogen has from a biostatistics point of view. Um, I've been there a couple of years now and before that I had a uh, just under 18 years at Eli Lilly in the UK and before that I spent some time working in academia um, with people we've heard from this week. In fact, Nigel Stallard, who spoke yesterday, was a colleague of mine in academia. Uh, Sue Todd, who's part of, part of the PSI committee, was also in the same research unit with Nigel and myself. And I also worked at the uh, EORTC, the Cancer Research Group in Brussels, for a year. So that's my work history. Yep, yep. Very good. But today we'll kind of focus a little bit more on the, your supervisory journey and uh, your learnings. And um, so if you remember back in time when you first became supervisor, what was your kind of trainings that you had at that time? What kind of training did you get to, to uh, uh, get into this new responsibilities? Um, what I had when I, when I first got a supervisory role at Lilly was a fairly standard new supervisor training course which really just covered um, the legal aspects of what one needs to do as, as a supervisor and, and at that time it was a UK based team and therefore it's based of course in solely in UK law. Um, if you supervise across international borders that can be a little bit more complex of course. Um, but it was basically a legal background and then after a year or so there was more of a skills based thing. So get, be legal first and then you know, learn the skills uh, once you've got some experience. So you have some things, some experiences you can call on. But I think I'm actually going to totally uh, ruin your podcast by taking you on a different tangent because <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about this when you said this is what you'd like to talk about, about how I actually became a supervisor because at that time, our entire management structure was based in the United States, and I think I largely got the chance to be a supervisor because I'm talkative and opinionated, and people paid attention to that. I don't think, and history will play out, that it wasn't any innate supervisory skills or people management skills that I had shown at all, um, but I think... I was very confident about my opinions, overly so in fact, and um, when they were looking for somebody to build up a group uh, um, in the UK, because of that I stood out. Now that I think is an interesting way to get into supervision, because it's not really very intentional. You share some opinions about we ought to do this, we should do that, and the next thing you know, would you like to lead this group? So how did you feel about that? Well, I am, um, and I think there's, there is a subset of folk who, who have this. I mean, I loved it. Um, I like the idea of having authority and being able to shape the way a group is and a company is. And it, it you know, played um, to my enthusiasm and to my ego, which, you know, um, has good bits and, and bad bits about it. And I, I think that... Um, if I could travel back in time and meet that Simon, I'd probably slap him very hard because it was, uh, it, you know, it was a very misguided 
set of motivations. Um, but that's, I mean, that's what happened. And, um, you know, I do think one of the things I've learned over, over many years of supervision is that if you're not motivated by people, it's almost impossible to do. Okay. And that sounds a blindingly obvious thing to say, but people's motivation for taking particularly first-line supervisor positions are normally enormously varied. And the one I described is not entirely unusual. People do it because they like the idea of the power. People do it because they like the idea that it's a, a seniority thing. A title thing. Right. People do it because they want to shape the company, which is great, but that's not to do with people. That's to do with strategy and structure processes. and processes and all sorts of things. People do it because they're technically really, really strong and therefore they're now the technical lead for a given programme. Oh, and by the way, that comes with some people. So, yeah, so, so there are very lots the and case, lots yeah. and lots of motivations folk have to take supervisory positions that are nothing to do with people. It's to do with everything else around it. And I think, you know, probably the key thing I've learnt is if you're not about the people, if you're not interested and invested in the people, it is an absolute uphill struggle. I'm sure there are some people in the world who are perfectly competent supervisors not being particularly invested in the people, but I'm certainly not one of them. Um, and I you know, couldn't do the job on that basis. So I, I do think one really needs to have that motivation. And, you know, I know it sounds horribly trite, but I, I think it's really important. But if you, if you think, uh, say something about um, being interested in the people, what does that mean? Um, that's a good question. I should be careful what I say, clearly. <laughs> um, I, I think... You've got to want the people that you're responsible for to be able to fulfill their potential, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that may mean um, challenging and rapid growth, it could be challenging topics, it might be learning to deal with a particular, you know gap or something that's inhibiting them, it may be around confidence, it may be about maybe not fulfilling your potential in your particular current organisation. It may just be that that's not possible. But for me, I, I kind of feel that everyone deserves the right, and the world's not fair, but everyone deserves the right to be successful. I don't think anyone deserves the right to be successful in the exact position in the company they're in right now, because With that exactly might not their fit. task. <laughs> right. I, I, you know, but I do think people have the right for professional success and I, I so I think it's helping people fulfill their potential it's it's wanting them to do well and and a number of years ago uh, when the CEO before the current one started at Eli Lilly where I was at the time he had been CEO for a year and he put a blog posting out and he asked for feedback on his first year as CEO. And this is a company of 40,000 people, and I think 38 of us wrote something, which is a fairly poor return. <laughs> but I, I talked about this, and one of the things I suggested in my little bit of feedback to him 
was that I would make within that company all people with supervisory responsibilities, 50% of their end of year assessment should be down to what their people do and nothing to do with what they do as individuals. So nothing about their individual contributions to drug development or whatever, but about what they're doing with their people, how they're growing the people, the contributions of their people. Mm -hmm. so, so for me, it's that kind of focus and, and you know, yeah, it was, it's a very interesting story that you know, kind of, kind of um, got into the position before getting trained or you know, understanding what it is because it happened to me quite similar also that I didn't have time really to, to get into the position or to, to, to you know, in, develop into the position but I really got put into the position because I said well yeah, I could, could think about it it's a good thing to have you know, management responsibility and kind of these things so um, But when, I, when you look back and before you slap that guy in the face, so just go one year later, so what would you describe as mistakes or things that would not have happened to you as a supervisor or even to your team mm. in case you would have had the chance to really develop into the position more slowly and, sure. and work on that? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, I mean, there are still people who are members of PSI who, you know, who were in my team at that time, and I, I will be quite open. I was a horrible supervisor. I had no clue what I was doing, in fact. Um, and I was, in many ways, the living cliche of everything you hear about technical folk going into supervision. Um, now, I've learned a little bit over the years since then, but at the time, I mean, it was, it was pretty horrible. I felt I had some decent management ideas. That's kind of what got me the opportunity in the first place, was being opinionated about stuff other than just technical statistics. But I had nothing like a management temperament. And, um, you know, I, I, there were so many things I was unprepared for. Um, a lot of them blindingly obvious. But I think one of the things that perhaps wasn't, and it's going to sound strange, I was not ready for people to listen to me. What do you mean by that? So, I had been a statistician, you know, working on various programs, and I became a first-level supervisor, and all of a sudden I was management. And every little thought or aside or off-the-cuff comment became, well, management has said. And, and I, I was totally unprepared for that. And I remember one colleague of, of mine storming into my office and quite upset about some inconsistency or hypocrisy or some such because uh, I was saying X and that's not what I had said previously and you know etc etc and and she was she was very upset and I was in hindsight glad she actually felt she'd come talk to me about it but she she, she was she was very upset about it and, and in the end I said When, when did I when did I say that? With oh, a coffee machine, you know, three weeks ago. And I was like, oh my goodness! I mean, that was at best a, a, a one tenth formed thought. You know, I'm just That's throwing stuff out there, and, and you know, I mean, Alexander, you know me well. I think aloud, and I was not prepared for. You know, the, the, these random tiny little snippets of ideas. To sort of be management has said, um, <laughs> so so I was very unprepared for that. Um, I was deeply unprepared for 
real technical things around communication like tone and body language and all of the stuff you learn on a communication skills course, which I had done and I knew, but I was unprepared for how all of that is magnified so much. Mm. You know, in, in, this is just my experience, you know, I'm not yeah, saying this is a universal thing. But, but, but it, how especially much if kind of, if you have very junior people, yeah. And say are very unexperienced and maybe uh, also um, not that confident, yeah. Then they even more rely on what the supervisor is, is uh, saying, and maybe not directly challenging or questioning or uh, double checking. And then, yeah, just a random thought. Exactly. Yeah. With the wrong tone. And triggers action. You know, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, I, I would the thing on the communication skills. I think for people who have children, this 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 may may help. People always say things like, "Well, you, you know, no two children are the same." And and then when you're a father of or mother of one child, you go, "Oh yes, I know, I know." And you know this, you understand this. It's there in your brain. And then your second child comes along, and you sort of go, "Oh my gosh, they really are nothing alike at all, are they?" <laughs> and even though you knew it in your brain, the moment you actually experience it. It, it seems to have a whole new dimension to it. And for me, this idea of tone and body language and all the stuff you've been taught on lots of courses suddenly took on a whole new dimension because it starts the consequence of that play out right in front of your eyes. So, so for me, that was, that was a real genuine shock. So that was, had a lot to do then to do with self-awareness of how you are perceived by others. Um, yes, yes, I would say, um, and I think a lot of a lot of sort of how I reflect back on that time, obviously, is because we're twenty years later now, and it's you know there's a lot of time that's passed and uh, thought that has gone into it. But that is an example of something that at the time, you know, when, when this particular colleague sort of said it was at the coffee machine three weeks ago, that kind of some light bulb lit up, and I was like, oh goodness, okay, and and really had to rethink um, uh, rethink my approach, um, which was you know challenging because it's an approach that I've grown up with through my technical path you know for half a dozen to a dozen years leading up to that yeah I think it's from one moment to the other you're to your team the face of the company or you represent the company to, to uh, those that we bought, yeah, you're report the, to you. You're not the colleague anymore that you've used to be. You're the manager. It's really like just changing like this. Yeah. And I, I, I think you know, something I've tried to do uh, you know, over the last few years in my career is trying to demystify that a little. Because I don't think that's a helpful construct at all. At you know, and I've tried to demystify that. I... I hope I have, you should go talk to some of my Biogen colleagues to see if this is true, but I, I hope I have a fairly open style where, unless I've specifically been told something is confidential, you know, I'm happy to talk about it and share it. And I'm lucky enough, I work with a really great team where I can share an opinion as an opinion. So uh, here is my opinion. I'm not saying it's how it is, but... And that's a very... It's a very, very nice situation to be in and not necessarily a common one. Yeah, and this is something that the team has to learn as well. Because this is a process, because the first time they perceive you as your manager, as the company, the face of the company, or 
and they also have to learn that you are still you know, part of the team. I, I, I think one thing, one thing, and I'll be really intrigued to know whether this is true to you know in the pharmaceutical industry as it is today. But but back in two thousand, when I was first a supervisor, there was a I, I had a real sense that as a statistician on a multidisciplinary team then I was the undisputed expert in statistics. There was nobody in that room, there was nobody in those project teams who knew more about statistics than I did, even though I was fairly career young, because I was the statistician. And so people might ask you what is and isn't possible, but generally speaking, for the big major chunk of your job, which is statistics, nobody challenged you on that. And then you go to supervision and suddenly everyone's an expert in supervision. Everyone has their own opinions on what you should or should not be doing and how you should have done this better or not made that decision or done this or done that and everyone has an opinion all of a sudden in a way that wasn't my experience working on a cross-functional team, you know. The regulatory person isn't going to have an opinion on the appropriateness of my choice of variance-covariance structure or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I think for me it was also kind of the situation with statistics you were kind of grown up, you're well educated, you feel well kind of experienced, it was kind of very safe ground. Yeah. And now this is you felt like a complete newbie again. And there was so and and even if you of course you worked with supervisors because you had supervisors, um, it completely looks different from the other side of the desk. Yes, although although that's I think it's a good example of, of your self-awareness. I was blissfully ignorant. I mean, I was, I say, I really was a walking cliche. And I went into supervision going, well, I've had, you know, what was it, four managers in my career. I know which ones I thought were good. I know which ones I thought were not good. I know what bits I thought they did well, and I'll do that, and I will be fine. And I was anything but fine. Um, so I, I do think it's very important what support structure is around you. Do you have other managers local to you who are either you're reporting to or are doing the same job as you but have been doing it longer? Whose brain can you go and pick? Uh, who can you talk to about things you might not be aware of? And you talked about awareness, Alexander. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on you probably don't even know is going on because you don't know to look for it. So if you've got those sort of... Uh, resources available to you, I think that's, that's enormously important. Uh, my closest manager was four and a half thousand miles away and that made it a little bit trickier. Um, so yeah, I, I do think people whose brains you can pick is, is really important. I think it's even more important if they also know the people that you manage. That helps very often because then they know about kind of the more the, the real cases and the real problems and uh, kind of can more anticipate what kind of problems you might face. That was. Yeah, yeah, I think, yes, I think that's true. I, I do think that if you're in an organization of a reasonable size, then hopefully one's first supervisory opportunity is not with a group that's riddled with problems. You know, it's, it's in a group where you have a good chance to get going and get, get used to that and perhaps some of the more challenging assignments come later on. Um, but if that's not the case and you're going in you know, to a group with, with, 
which has some challenges, then absolutely, I think that's very helpful. Yeah, I think having the individuals, uh, you know, being with the strengths and weaknesses, kind of, um, you know, if you have support on the individual level for these you know, persons, that that's really, really great. If you have somebody else, like your super, your own supervisor or your colleague. That is kind of stepping in or supporting you has more experience. I think um, this is this is one of the key um, like coaching that you can take uh, as a new supervisor if you have real life experience with a colleague or something to, to coach you on. Um, but just for uh, like more more on the technical side, so what kind of trainings or what kind of um, support would you? Um, or, do you think were most beneficial in the past for you, maybe personally, or what would you recommend for um, people that are new supervisors or will become supervisors soon or might hopefully? Um, would be like we talked about communication skills. Is there anything else what you would really recommend or think it's? I, I'm. I'm not sure. There's necessarily anything that I think is a, a single training. I would say, right, four supervisors, go do this. I, I think a lot of trainings that we tend to run and send people on in our industry, leadership, influence, negotiation skills, communication skills, and so on, they're, they're all part of that package. Um, but I think some of the things that I've learned o o over the years, and I sort of said earlier on, I, you know, was, was quite the walking disaster area, and Presumably, by the fact I'm still allowed to supervise people, you know, 18 years later, I'm no longer a walking disaster area. Um, either that or the people above me have some pretty bad judgment. Um, <laughs> I, I think those things are, can't really be trained in a kind of formal classroom setting or, you know, you can watch a TED talk and hear the words, but it's different to do it. So I do think... You need, you need to have the investment in the people that you're responsible for. And I don't think a training course teaches you to be invested. And you can hear people, well, like on this podcast, say it's important to be invested and you can nod along, but that's real different mm. to actually being invested. Um, I think you need, to in, you need to put the time in to get to know the people and get to know their motivators, um, understand what's important to them. So just to chime in there, how do you learn about what motivates people? Well, my, my own method is, is, is wonderfully simple. I ask them. <laughs> I don't necessarily say, please, please arrive at your next one-to-one -one with a list of your motivators. Well, that, that would be unfair. But I, I do discuss what is important to people. I try and understand what their career aspirations are. Um, I... Everyone has a different situation, and it's easy to assume that everyone wants the same thing. It's easy to assume everyone wants a more challenging project, or everyone wants a promotion. And some folk don't. Some folk have a situation in life where what they most value is having predictable working hours, doing a good professional job, and having job security. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that whatsoever. So to assume that somebody for whom that's important wants to go and get promoted and take on big leadership opportunities that might come with a ton of extra work, that would be an incredibly naive assumption. So you've got to talk to folk. 
And it may be that their motivations are reasonable and achievable in, you know, in a short period of time. It may be it's a long-term goal. It may be that it's not realistic or practical at all. But if you don't have the conversation in the first place, you'll never know that. I, so there's expectations on the job. And then there's motivations for doing the job. Mm -hmm. How do you see the differentiations there? Uh, I would see expectations, in terms of my expectations of others, I would see that as a, 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 a more objective thing. And, and the motivations is, is the why. You know, why do you come into work each morning? You know, why this particular company? Um, and once you've taken care of some of the hygiene factors, like, well, I come to work because I'm not independently wealthy and thus need to earn some money, um, which is a, you know, a, a, a facile answer because, of course, you, know, you can earn money doing many different things in many different places. So, um, why here? And is coming here an active decision or is it a passive decision? Um, and you would never, I would never ask that directly, but understanding then, you know, what's important to this person, thinking about what we're doing as a company, looking at how much overlap or otherwise there is. And from that, you can start to think about what opportunities there may be that fits well for them, uh, you know, and help them, help them, you know, Again, it sounds obviously really trite, but help them enjoy coming into work in the morning. In terms of that, I need to say I really struggled with this, these questions for quite a lot of time. So I, I remember I was um, once over in the headquarters in Indianapolis and I met some, some more senior people and one person actually asked me, so what motivates you? And I said, um, I want to earn more money. And he said, oh, okay, if that motivates you. And this kind of thing, I still have in my head because thereafter I thought, is this really my motivation? And I, um, from that day, kind of, I had a very, very long journey to, to end up with what is really my motivation. Right. So, so I think the, the question about just asking gives you some some answers, but I'm not really sure that it that lots of people are really aware why they do things. No, I think I think that's a that's a very good point. I think that um, I think it's a starting point. You know, so when that person said to you, "What motivates you?" You said, "Earn more money." Um, that doesn't necessarily you know they would be quite naive if they just took that at face value. <laughs> but it's a starting point, and it's a starting point for a conversation. Um, and I think a lot of it is a series of conversations, you know, over time. This isn't something you, you sit down in, in a one-to-one -one and go, right, on my agenda for the one-to-one -one today is to find out your motivations. That's, no, that's not... Ticked off no, after no, five minutes. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I think, but if that was someone who knew you well, then they could have come back with you, oh, okay, so you're, you're going to leave and become a hedge fund manager, are you? Because that's certainly much better paid than what you're getting as a ind you know, pharmaceutical industry statistician. You know, and that challenge might have started that thought process in you. But, but the other thing you said was about the awareness. I, 
When I started at, at Biogen, I went on my first trip to to Boston, where the company's headquartered. I went out for dinner with uh, my two direct reports, and um, I said, yeah, "What questions do you have?" And, and one of them said, "You know, what do you look for?" You know, in a statistician, and she was expecting me to say, "You know." I'm really keen to have someone who knows Bayesian methods or, you know, I, I, I want somebody who's got regulatory experience or something. And I just said self-awareness. Because I think if somebody is kind of has a good sense of where they are in, in all sorts of different dimensions, then you can work alongside them pretty easily. If they don't have good self-awareness, then... Part of that, that journey, that supervision, you know, the development and all of that thing always has this aspect to it which is helping them get that awareness so they understand what they do. Um, so I think it doesn't necessarily mean you have to change, but you have to be aware of it. You know, so I am talkative. I am a talkative statistician. It's not a common phenomenon. It is not. <laughs> What I'm aware about that is that when I work with non-statisticians after the initial surprise, it's pretty effective. But I've had times in my career where I am, where my technical input is treated by, with scepticism by other statisticians because they subconsciously associate my talkativeness with some sort of fluff, which means I can't be technical, which is a fascinating thing in and of its own right. But kind of understand that mechanism is there. I'm not suddenly going to change who I am and stop being talkative. But but just knowing that that's there can make me aware of it, and you know, in certain situations, try and mitigate that a little bit. And and I think if you've got folk who have a, have a degree of self awareness, then it's much much easier to help them. Mm -hmm. It is. Sounds like a quite advanced status than at the, uh, the time you asked that question back. But just um, just going back a few steps earlier in our conversation, you know, when I asked you about the the training that you potentially recommend or whatever. So do you do you actually then think that new supervisors, you know, will really have a hard time because there's no technical training available? So do you, you know, I mean, they will they will fail at some, uh, they partly fail at, at, on the way to become a senior supervisor? Is it kind of what you expect new supervisors to expect? Um, I would guess that pretty much everyone fails at everything at some point because that's how you learn and yeah. it's around whether that failure is catastrophic or whether it's fairly minor. So on the technical side you, you find an issue in an analysis you've done You can find your supervisor go, uh, we did this wrong, and you correct it. Mm. You know, on the supervisory side, if you've made a, a fairly minor mistake, hopefully, you know, if you've conducted a conversation badly, hopefully you can grab that person and apologize wrong, for yeah. it and say, Look, I know I didn't do that well, I'm really sorry, and, and you have a second go. Yeah. Um, now, if you're doing that four times a day, every day of the week, that may be a different issue, <laughs> but, you know, I, you will get things wrong. It's totally mm. unrealistic to think otherwise. And there's nothing special about supervisory skills over, let's say, technical skills that means you miraculously will never make a mistake. You will make mistakes all of the time. Mm -hmm. And I think 
if you're the sort of person who's going to beat yourself up over every single sort of thing you do imperfectly, then um, well, it's probably not the industry for you, but it's, I would say certainly supervision isn't because it's not got that preciseness of our te the technical side of our job. No, you know, yeah. it, is, it, is, it is loose, it is woolly, and yeah. you know, you're never going to do everything mm. perfectly. You're probably never going to do anything perfectly. It's can you do it well? In terms of that, how would you actually then define doing it well? So, so how does success look like for being a good supervisor? Oh goodness, that's uh, that, that's a loaded question. I, I, I guess <laughs> uh, the true answer to that is, if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be working in this industry, and I would be on doing TED talks and um, <laughs> um, being some sort of leadership guru, which I'm most certainly not. Um, I don't think you assess it directly, I think you see it indirectly. So I think, you know, there's formal mechanisms, I, you know, do your team give positive feedback at the end of the year, but that could also be evidence of you doing appallingly badly, of course, because if you're intimidating all your staff, you're not doing a good job, but you may not get bad feedback either. Um, I, I think it's... It's going to be what people say to you when you're not say about you when you're not around. You know, it's if somebody was going to come and join your team, Alexander, and they went to one of your direct reports and said, you know, "Should I join the team?" If they go ahead and join your team enthusiastically, that's probably a good reflection of how you are as a supervisor. Um, if they do everything they can to avoid joining your team, then there's probably something to explore in that, right? And, and I think so. I think it's kind of indirect. Um, I think you have to trust the people around you and particularly the people above you and that if you're not doing a good job you're going to know about it well I think that's probably the easiest thing to say if your supervisor thinks you're doing a good job as a supervisor then that's always <laughs> good yeah, but I think there are more, more parts where you know more dimensions where you can kind of measure a little bit at least of if you're a good supervisor. For example, if you see uh, people in your team progressing with certain skills where you think, you know, this is something where we, which we found to be a weakness and it's kind of turned around into a strength. Or if, you know, if the team is working together better, is, you know, the flexibility internally. Yeah. So if you, if you detected um, weaknesses in the team or in the individual and Five years later, three years later, you find out or you realize, well, there's a really good progress. That's also part of a measurement, at least for myself, to say, well, okay, we detected it, we changed it, good. But, but, but just, just to get a little bit kind of challenging here in terms of um, this, we love each other and everybody feels good. How do business results feel in, uh, feed into this? Um... I guess I could say, what would you consider to be a statistics business result? <laughs> uh, it certainly isn't a positive study, because that's got an awful lot to do with the drug as much as it is the statistical work. Um, what I, most companies will have some sort of assessment of, in, of an individual's performance, and if your team is performing well, that's good. But of course, if you're the one ascribing the assessment of how well they're doing, there's an inherent bias in using how well your team is doing as a measure of how well you're doing, if you're the one giving out the scores in the first place. Um, 
So I don't have a, a particularly good answer for that. I think it's um, a lot of the business results are, are givens. You know, I think the days of saying we did everything on time and thinking that's an astonishing success are long behind us. I think it's an assumption that stuff is done on time. I think it's, there's an assumption that stuff is correct in some sense. Um, so I don't really have a, a good answer for that. But, but, but one, of, one of the other points was you were talking about um, you know, things that perhaps are a weakness and turn around into a strength. I think there is a, a, a common perception that if you've got somebody in your team who's struggling or having a hard time with things or, or, or you know, has, a, you know, has some sort of thing, you know, some gap or something in their skills, so that's a, a challenging you know, situation for a supervisor. And there are times when it, it can be. I actually think that supervising the talented is at least as difficult, if not more so, because you have to keep those folk interested. And there's an awful lot of tasks that we do in this industry that aren't especially interesting. Um, there's a lot of fairly operational tasks. You have to keep them intellectually challenged. You have to um, think about what opportunities are right for them to to stretch them and, and, and that is at least as much investment. If you've got someone who's really properly struggling, then most companies have some sort of process for managing non-performance. So there's a framework there. I don't know of a company that has a framework for managing super performance, you know, and stretching mm -hmm. that out. So I, I actually think having you know, having really super talented people is at least as much of a challenge, no, if not more so, as a supervisor. No, I agree. It's it was just an example saying you know yeah. that and like kind of how how to measure to be good supervisor. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I fully agree. It's the you know it's where where this this is challenging you more, really, to work with somebody who's kind of ahead of everything, mm -hmm. than somebody who's far behind. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So so in terms of when we talk about the strengths of the people and you want to challenge them and you want to give them the, the, the right uh, projects, um, how do you kind of distinguish you know, these things where people think they are good and people where they are actually good? And especially in terms of good relative to others. You know, yeah. because I think very often we, you know, you're good at this, but you have another talent where you're maybe not as good at the first task, but compared to all these others, you're a superstar. So maybe it's better you work on this task for the company and right. stretch that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, that comes down to an awareness thing. You know, are you talking, you know, if you're talking about a situation where someone's got a pretty good sense of their strengths, where they want to really work on, on things that require their top strength, and the situation you gave, I think, is where they're working with their second or third strength. I think that's one situation. A different situation is where there's a, a sort of a lack of awareness of what their strengths are. You know, and, and you see this in, in folk who perhaps have had a perfectly acceptable year, but you know, that's all they've kind of done and they come in at the end of the year with a write-up that kind of says, you know, I, I've solved all the problems of the world. And that's the, the, the lack of awareness there. So I think, I think the two situations are slightly different. Um, I think you need to be able to explain. 
um, why you think it's it's a good thing to do. It doesn't mean there has to be a debate about it because if you have the authority to assign the task, you have that authority. But I do think you need to explain to folk why. And there are situations, I have a colleague actually in a different function um, who was put on a particular assignment and their supervisor was fantastic, I think, because they basically said, I'm sorry, this is a horrible assignment. It's going to be dull and it's going to be boring. But it's so important that it is done totally correctly. You are the one person I can rely on to do it. It is six months. It will not last more than six months. And I'm not going to try and pretend to you this is some fantastic opportunity, but it just is so important that it's done right. You're the only person I'm willing to put on it. And they went and did it, and they did it with good grace because they're an employee of the company just like everyone else's. And I, I thought that was brilliant supervision because the temptation to, you know, dress Fair something up, <laughs> dress something up, you know. And, you know, people are not idiots. If you use the word opportunity for every nasty conversation, difficult problem, then when there is a genuine opportunity, no one's going to believe you. And so I thought that supervisor did, did, did a fantastic job because they were just dead honest. Mm. So, you know, those are the sort of examples that, that, that I see are saying different function in this case, but I kind of try and store away somewhere for when I'm faced with that situation, I go, right, I think, you know, and it's a style that would sit very comfortably with me. And I do think you have to be, you know, we've talked a, a lot today about kind of how I see things. I think it is important to say you have to supervise in a way that's right for you. You know, people use phrases like authentic and you know, you'll see books on authentic leadership. I mean, my take is people will see straight through you if you're trying to be something you're not. So if you're pretty straightforward, be pretty straightforward. If you're mega empathetic, then be enormously empathetic. You know, and, and, and supervising a style that is, is, is real for you. And I think people are pretty flexible in terms of what styles they can work with. Mm -hmm. I think where people, and myself included, have problems is where they see a disconnect. And whether that's intentional, like hypocrisy, or whether that's unintentional, I don't think it really matters, but they see that disconnect. So we just talked about kind of um, assigning work to people. And you mentioned this kind of example where you had a dull task, but that was such important that you put it to someone which was not kind of this optimal situation where it's a, you know, engaging, motivating task. Um, and I think there will be always kind of these constraints because, of course, you only have a set of certain projects, tasks, whatsoever to do, and you need to match that on a given set of people that you have, at least for the moment. And, you know, over, over time you can develop things. But um, how do you kind of fit this puzzle Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a resourcing puzzle, which, depending on your company structure, may or may not be your responsibility. Um, I mean, if you're working in clinical development, then you pretty much know kind of what studies are in the plan and what's upcoming. You have a sense of what skills you need, and you build your team accordingly. Um, so, I, I, yeah, for me, 
it's a case of getting the right people, you know, the right skills in your team. So not, when I say the right people, not the right individuals, meaning I want Fred and Joe and Alice, but, okay, I'm get, this one is going to be really tricky. I need somebody who's super strong on methods. This one I know operationally is going to be a challenge, so I need somebody who is very, very good at that side of things. Um, these ones are pretty standard, so I can be more flexible, and you build your team accordingly, I think. Okay, very good. I think we touched all the points that we wanted to cover. It was a little bit longer, well, for an obvious reason. <laughs> and, uh, but I really very, very much enjoyed uh, the discussion, and thanks a lot, Simon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. It was really good. So... And like always, you can uh, find the show notes on our homepage uh, at theeffectivestatistician.com. And if you want to keep listening to this, please subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Bye. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. If you enjoyed the show, please 